This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It's Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. Usually when we talk about bubbles in a business or economic context, there's usually a negative association. But more recently, from tourism to sporting events to business, bubbles have taken on a more positive meaning. And here to explain is someone who spent most of his life in a bubble, MSP's Matt Armitage. Matt, this won't be the first time you've been blowing bubbles on this show. Hey, Jeff. Well, I'm going to take that to mean that you think I'm blowing little bubbles of uh, insight and ingenuity. Sure. If that's what your bubble tells you, I mean. I am completely inoculated from negativity today. Your thoughts are but unformed soap suds that simply slide over me. But um, you are right. You know, when we talk about bubbles, it is usually in a negative sense. We talk about them in the sense of uh, speculative markets and economic booms that have outpaced any rational measure of their expansion. And we use the term uh, bubble because it's something that's seen as fragile. It's something that we expect is going to, you know, burst imminently. But now we're reframing the idea of bubbles as something that protects rather than isolates us from reality. And we're seeing that idea being applied to multiple sectors of society as a way to restart economies and to give people more freedom of movement and, of course, to kickstart things like leisure activities. Mm. The travel bubble is one that has had a lot of press. Well, yeah, and there have been a a few of these kind of models mooted uh, and they've thrown together some really strange collections of, uh, of countries. So the idea is that countries with low rates of coronavirus cases can form travel corridors uh, with each other. In some instances, this uh, uh, will reopen completely closed borders or removes those travellers from uh, experiencing very onerous travel conditions like um, two-week quarantines at both ends. Mm. Are there any in operation already or are they just still all being discussed? Well, China started a corridor with South Korea in May. Uh, Singapore launched one, I think, on June the the 8th, so about uh, two weeks ago, uh, between itself and six provinces in China, including uh, Shanghai and Guangdong. And it's currently negotiating to establish corridors with Canada and South Korea. And uh, New Zealand is set to establish a corridor with Australia any time now. The Pacific Islands are also lobbying to join that New Zealand-Australia corridor. And we're seeing business organisations around the world pushing to, at the very least, start what companies see as essential business travel. But we're also seeing increasing pressure to set up similar bubbles to facilitate international tourism as well. Mm. So how would these bubbles work? Well, I mean, I'm not going to give conjecture here. I mean, this is how the one in Singapore currently works. Uh, You have to be sponsored by a company or a government agency. They make the application for a safe travel pass on your behalf. If your application is approved, you still have to apply for your normal immigration visa if you need one. Uh, You have to take a coronavirus test within 48 hours of travelling. On arrival in Singapore, you present your safe travel pass as well as undergoing further health screening and you have to take another coronavirus test at your own expense. 
your company transports you to your declared accommodation and you have to wait there until you get your test results. Presumably, you go into quarantine or straight into a COVID-19 treatment centre if you test positive then. Well, exactly. And even if you test negative, your movements are still restricted. So your company has to submit a detailed itinerary for the trip, uh, which you're not allowed to deviate from. Uh, You need to install Singapore's Track and Trace app on your phone and you're not allowed to take uh, public transport. Mm, so it's really a long way from freedom of movement. Yeah, because the you know the important factors there, as you can see, are this kind of track and trace. Uh, they know where you are. They know who you come into contact with throughout your trip. So this is a, a lot more stringent than some of the tourism bubbles that are being considered, which include things like shortened quarantine periods, testing on arrival, and freedom to travel within designated regions. Mm. How would that kind of movement be enforced exactly? Well, this is the issue. You know, there's a lot of potential for abuse. Currently, there's a travel corridor operating between the US and Canada that allows US citizens to travel overland to and from Alaska, which is, of course, a US state. However, they aren't allowed to stop for anything except gas and to stay in motels. They have to eat takeout. Um, I think they have to use drive throughs if I'm not mistaken. And they're not allowed to wander around and interact with Canadian citizens. But there is a great deal of trust involved. Uh, and Canadian police have been called uh, in instances where US families have come into restaurants to eat or they've been spotted uh, walking around towns. Mm. I hope there's some point other than, you know, Americans don't follow rules. Well, it's actually a more general fact that people don't follow rules, uh, especially when they're on holiday. And most countries have, at the very least, liberalised domestic travel. So if you're coming to a country like Singapore, your limits are automatically limited by geography because it's a a relatively small landmass. It's realistic to expect that, uh, that that host state is going to be able to keep tabs on you. But what happens once you land in London or Sydney or New York, for example. The UK is already and very publicly struggling to instigate any kind of uh, track and trace measures and systems. And once you're in the US or Australia, you have pretty much an entire continent to explore. Uh, And that massively increases your ability to spread an infection uh, that you already have or to pick it up while you're travelling around and, of course, to to bring it back home. Mm. It doesn't sound as though you are in favour. I am. Um, You know, we we can't stay wrapped up and isolated forever, but I'm just trying to illustrate how complicated this is just at that, you know, very simple human level. Because you want to talk about an inhuman level. I wouldn't have put it quite like that, but you're not far wrong. You know, one of the assumptions we make is that infrastructure and technology are seamless and interchangeable wherever we travel in the world. Uh, As many uh, airport operators have indicated, we can't even think about a return to the kind of air travel that we had before, at least while any risk from this disease remains. There simply isn't enough space. Uh, I mean, if you cast your mind back to the last time you travelled during a busy period, think about the queues for check-ins, baggage, immigration, boarding. Try and multiply that space by a factor of you know, one or two metres for social distancing. You'd have to build entire new hangars so that people could check in 
and still safely distant. Mm. Presumably, it will require a lot of automation as well. Absolutely. You know, you now have to health screen every passenger. Uh, you possibly have to screen them at uh, multiple times at different points through their journey through uh, their departure and arrival airports. But at the same time, you don't want frontline staff to take that risk of getting sick and the consequences that that poses to, obviously, to the other staff members and to society at large. So as much as possible, you're going to want people interacting with machines. Hence the reason, you know, we called this the inhuman level. But adoption of these technologies is spotty at best. Uh, for example, when I travel back to the UK, I usually use an automated biometric passport control machine that scans my face and my passport. Mm. Did they detect any biology? Yes, very amusing. Um, the machines recognize me as their friend and their envoy. Um, but many airports don't have that kind of tech, and that is just a baseline. So even with automated check-in, there's often uh, a human being at the baggage counter. We would probably want to see as many of those people removed as possible, at least for the time being. You'd probably want health screening to be done by robots. But what happens when you get to things like baggage and detectors? Again, you want that largely automated. You want maybe large-scale body scanners on walkways that you actually walk through where the human screening staff are actually separated and off in another room. Mm. It's complicated, but it sounds like it's doable. Well, doable, yes. But the question is, how long will it take and how much money will it cost? You know, we still don't know what the long-term impact of COVID-19 will be. Will we find a cure in the next 12 months? Will the virus dissipate or widespread immunity lessen the risk? Could it mutate into an even more dangerous form? Because the, the cost aside, it will take time. We're talking, you know, months or even years to buy and install the kind of equipment we're talking about and to completely overhaul airport systems especially when we talk about the the invisible ones the invisible one well you know airports are a bit like icebergs most of what happens in them isn't actually visible to us as travelers there's a huge ecosystem that provides baggage handling catering services cleaning maintenance essentially we're just the herd animals that are being put into to pens all of the people that work in those airports have to be kept safe or replaced with machines that can't get sick. So there's an enormous element of risk in committing to this kind of scale and pace of automation when we don't know how long these changes are going to be necessary for. I could have sworn that he promised to be more positive today. But anyways, after the break, an MSP first, Matt Amatich talks about sports. Game over after the break. BFM 89.9. Busy following money trail. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to MSP uh, episode 127. And today we're talking about bubbles. Now, Matt, um, the last time we heard you talk about sports on this show was never. Well, I know many, many things. And one of the things I know is that I don't know enough about sport to even bluff about what I don't know. Mm. But sports are an area we're seeing the idea of bubbles uh, is being discussed. Yes. In some countries, uh, sporting events have restarted, uh, by which I mean televised sports, because, you know, I'm reliably informed that those are the only ones that actually matter. Uh, South Korea, again, seems to be leading the way, as it seems to be leading in uh, many areas relating to living with COVID-19. Mm. Have you ever belonged to a sports team, Matt? 
I used to play in an amateur petanque league, um, that's French Bowls, in case uh, it isn't the primary live feed on your particular sports subscriptions package. <laughs> so that would be a no then. Well, I think you're probably insulting our francophone listeners, but um, yeah, you know, by and large, I don't really see that there's anything less ridiculous about Quidditch than there is about soccer. Uh, golf is probably the, the ideal sport for this new age, uh, although I'd insist that each course in include uh, an impenetrable labyrinth containing a minotaur at the end of the 18th hole. That way, supply and demand could be balanced quite quickly. Plutarch Matt, uh, organizer of the 75th Open Golf Hunger Games. That really would be such fun. Um, there are so many things that uh, I could do with nature, uh, especially given that Tremors is one of my favorite ever films. But um, we're talking about real sports and not the blockbuster Matt-made events of the future. Uh, obviously, sport is big business. Uh, clubs in major sporting leagues have market valuations going into the billions. Players sign multi-million dollar contracts and spectators pay top dollar for tickets to games and even to watch on TV. So to give you an example, ESPN, which is the market leader in sports broadcasting, brings in somewhere between $3 billion and $11 billion a year in revenue. Now, I know that's a big divergence, but the way cable packages are sold and structured is complicated and fragmented, so it can be hard to get a true picture of the, the revenue. But anyway, sport is worth a lot of money. And people who are paying for sports broadcasters uh, who have no sports to broadcast are, of course, asking for refunds. Not to mention the sponsorships and the advertising that keep the actual clubs and teams in these various sports running on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. In other words, there's a lot of pressure to get these sports restarted safely. Exactly. You know, one sport that uh, has already resumed in the US is boxing. Uh, and as we see uh, everything from uh, the UK's Premier League to uh, football and basketball in the US looking for ways to reopen, they're all looking for... Uh, that that model for successfully staging the games again. Mm. Presumably the first thing is no fans. Well, yeah, at some point I think we'll start to see socially distanced stadia. So I imagine attending games will become something that's only for the very wealthy uh, because it's not only the seating areas, it's things like the entrances and the exits where large numbers of people congregate. So I imagine if this continues, we'll see the first VIP-only stadia uh, in a few years' time. Uh, there'll be rows of endless sanitized boxes. Um, but yeah, if we go back to boxing, there's a really interesting series of uh, articles at the not-so-failing New York Times, which is looking into the many ways that sports are being restarted. So check those out if you want more depth than I'll be going into here. But it was the boxing, I think, that interested me, mm. you know, the most. Mm. Because you're, you're a wannabe plotak. Well, Yes, but um, because boxing is a, a limited sport in the sense that uh, there are just two participants, but it's still high contact. So uh, the organization behind the restart in the US is uh, Top Rank. Uh, they're planning to stage two fight cards a week throughout the summer months. Uh, they'll be staged at the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas um, because, you know, we're, we're coming back to that parallel about airports and icebergs. You know, we see the fight event, we see a couple of people bashing each other. But in order to stage the fight safely, the entire reboot needs to exist inside a bubble, isolated from the outside world. Uh, 
we're talking about obviously the fighters and their trainers, but also the people who support them, health professionals, makeup artists for the pre-fight stuff, lighting technicians, producers, directors, camera crew. Potentially, you know, you're talking about hundreds of people. Mm. Who all have to be sequestered. Yeah, so you have this bizarre scenario where the casinos are actually operating more or less normally. You know, people are sunning themselves by the pool, uh, that kind of thing, while entire floors of the casino's hotel are isolated to allow the boxers and the crew to train but not to leave or move around public areas uh, of the, the, the hotel complex. So it's very much a gilded cage. Even meals are served to the boxers and crew from behind plexiglass, and they have to sit at uh, socially distanced tables while they, they eat. Uh, anyone who leaves the bubble has to go through quarantine again when they come back. Everyone wears barcoded wrist tags. Security guards escort people as they move around. And everybody is tested twice a week. Mm. For how long? Well, for the boxers, it's probably a relatively short amount of time, you know, maybe a couple of weeks. But for the production crew, it could be weeks or even months. I mean, they're not being forced to be there. Um, but uh, Top Rank and the Boxing Association in Nevada are paying particular attention to the mental health needs of all concerned because we are in uncharted territory here. We don't know what the long-term effects of this kind of isolation and confinement, especially while you're working, are going to be. So, uh, Or rather, you know, we do have some idea, but our models come from things like prisons where there are quite different sets of expectations. And then we come to the actual boxing matches themselves. Uh, there are no spectators, obviously. So they pump in crowd noise from spectators who are watching on an app. Uh, separate platforms um, are erected outside the ring for the host to stand on and also for the ring card girls. So it limits their exposure to the actual boxers. Pundits and commentators uh, are obviously talking from their own studios, not from uh, the, the actual boxing. So they could literally be thousands of miles away across the country. Mm. How will that explain what happens to other sports? Well, you know, I wanted to look at something that was um, a bit of a microcosm. When you look at a lot of league sports, you know, the idea is that um, everyone plays everyone else, uh, whether it's football or soccer, baseball or basketball. There are a lot of teams in each division and a lot of players and support personnel for each team. So when you talk about bubbles for those sports, that bubble is going to have to be huge. Uh, and that's where a company like ESPN comes in, or rather the parent company of ESPN, which is Disney, um, because just for those boxing cards, they occupy a, a large chunk of real estate in a large casino. So if you think about the most extreme case scenario... Which is that you isolate all the teams for an entire season? Which is uh, one possibility. You're essentially creating this kind of long-term Olympic village for the teams and the people that support them. And this is where a company like Disney comes in because Disney has entire resorts to host... Uh, those kind of uh, events and, of course, the sports facilities that you need to actually successfully maintain these tournaments. Mm. Wouldn't you need multiple uh, venues and also locations? Well, potentially. Uh, in that case, you'd need your own fleet of planes or buses to whoosh the teams from one location to another, essentially from one quarantine green zone to another without ever stepping foot into places that they could potentially be infected. 
And again, these are contact sports. So the testing and isolation regimes have to be rigorous. Uh, but that would probably have to extend far beyond normal crew requirements. You would probably want everyone to live on site for the duration. And that means, you know, the caterers, the cleaning staff, uh, the people who do the laundry, mm. you know, everybody who's associated with this. An entire ecosystem to take care for the stars. Yeah. So the penny may have dropped for listeners who are wondering why MSP would be interested in this as a model, because, as I said, we haven't talked about sports before ever. Um but this isn't just a model we see for sports. It could be rep uh, repeated in many areas. So making movies, for example, maybe we would even see a return to the contract system where stars work exclusively for one studio and its pictures. Uh, many countries have seen their parliaments close down or go virtual. This is one model that would allow lawmakers to exist in a bubble that allows them to do their legislative work. And companies could also adopt a, a similar model. Hmm. Isn't that maybe taking it a step too far? Well, I know it sounds like it, but it's not that outlandish. So we've seen, for example, in the um, health and care sector, care, uh, care homes, residential homes, many of them have done something similar to protect residents, uh, which is that the staff remain on site and don't go back to their families. What would be interesting to, to me anyway would be the extent to which uh, this kind of activity could remap our societies. You can imagine these kind of enclaves of the rich and famous uh, living in hotel suites or bungalows while the people serving them are kind of crowded into dorms. Um, a bit like that, you know, that Snowpiercer movie or, or current TV series. Mm. It also sounds uh, a lot like the plot of the movie Land of the Dead. Uh, one of my favourite zombie movies, as that happens. Um, and yes, a pretty much pitch-perfect analogue. So the zombies in this instance would be the coronavirus-subjected hordes, who are standing obviously outside the gate, while inside the elite live in luxurious splendour in a huge tower, with the lucky few chosen to serve them, eking out a life without any of the kind of trappings of luxury that their bosses enjoy. Hmm. Pandemic or not, a bit different from being able to walk out into the real world versus being ripped apart by an undead horde. Sure, but the movie is actually an economic allegory. It's not really about the zombies. They're just there to liven up the messaging because... You know, you know how audiences are. For every polemic-filled monologue the actors deliver, the audience wants to see a zombie eating brains. You know, it's kind of a trade-off. How do you think this show works? Mm, I'm not. I'm not even going to ask which one of us has his brains eaten. Uh, well, you know, with jobs scarce and rising unemployment levels, people may think they have no choice but to go and live inside one of these bubbles. Migrant workers are a feature of developing countries, but this pandemic could essentially bring that model back to developed countries too. The idea of people forced by quarantine restrictions to live apart from their loved ones in order to work and earn money for them. Mm. You can't leave it there. No, and to be honest, you know, this is very much a worst case scenario. But what we have seen is that the pandemic has deepened the disparities between the kind of haves and have-nots in society uh, through everything from uh, medical care through to access to technology through to access to food. Life is much easier if you can afford to use um, delivery service apps, uh, for example, which are not in everyone's price range. 
you know, thankfully in Malaysia, the government has stepped in to control the prices of many essentials. But that's not the case everywhere in the world. So while I don't see uh, a pandemic ravaged future uh, in the spirit of land of the dead but these systems that we're putting in place to restart sports other industries travel we have to make sure that they're not just those gilded cages that we talked about and that we're not being forced by necessity to walk towards this kind of dystopian uh, situation. Mm. You convinced me that, uh, you know, we were going to talk about something positive about bubbles, but I'm not so sure, man. I'm still, you know, hesitant about your definition of positivity, I guess. <laughs> I'm the one in the bubble. <laughs> we'll be right back with uh, Geek Squawks after this. And if you missed any parts of this episode, uh, episode 127, you can download a podcast now available on the BFM website or you can check out culturepop.com for a full transcript. Uh, stick, uh, stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.